I am so delighted and honored to be here. Thank you, Brad, for your kind words. This place means so much to me. I, if, there, if there's one place that I, um, that I love to be on Sunday mornings, it's Kenwood Baptist Church. And right after Kenwood Baptist Church, it's University Baptist Church in Fayetteville. This is a place dear to my heart. And so thank you for having me. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to be with you and to open the word and for us to worship the Lord together as we look into the word. So let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would make the text that is before us our song. Lord, we pray that you would be for us our strength and our song and our salvation. And we pray that you would cause us to worship you as you deserve. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect on the ways that you have been faithful to us in the past, the ways that you have delivered us against all expectation. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this to make us confident that you will save us in the future as you saved us in the past. So we look to you, Lord, for help with all the things that we face, and we pray that you would work now by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, and as I was reflecting on the opportunity to look at this text with you and, and thinking about the big idea of this passage, which I think is this, I think the big idea of Exodus 15 is our worship looks back in order to look forward. And as I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think about coming to the University of Arkansas as an 18-year-old freshman and, and sort of comparing the scenario that I went, went into with the scenario that my wife and I have just sent our firstborn son into as we sent him off to college this past fall. And uh, I, I, would, I would have been terrified as a, as a father. We sent our son to a, a good place a much more conservative place than the University of Arkansas. I would have been very concerned uh, had I been my father, knowing that I was sending my son to the University of Arkansas, uh, not, not a conservative institution, to the English department, not a conservative department, and to be a part of the baseball team, which had a, not a very good reputation at the time. Uh, you know, it's, it's almost like putting Daniel right in there among the Babylonians. And... What happened to me, and if you're a believer, I think you'll resonate with this, what happened to me is what happened to you. The Lord saved me. The Lord preserved me. The Lord showed his power by making it so that the allurements of the world and the, the intellectual enticements of the left and all of the dangers and snares that a young man can face at college were powerless to take me away from the gospel. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus said in John 10 when he said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he said, my father who is greater than all holds them and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And then he said those profound words, I and the father are one. So what we're looking at this morning is Israel's response to the way that God saved them at the Red Sea. And I just want to remind you of the details as we approach this song of praise in Exodus chapter 15. In some ways, this is the very first psalm, P-S-A-L-M, in the Bible. 
You know, you have the book of Psalms, and all of those Psalms, they're responding to the way that God saved his people in the past. In David's case, now some of that is contemporary. He's responding to the way that the Lord just saved him. And, and as they think about how God has just saved them or in the distant past, they're also applying that knowledge to the future in the Psalms. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in Exodus 15, which leads me to say this. We should recognize the way that David in the Psalter, has learned from Moses. In some ways, the great poet of Israel has modeled himself off the great prophet of Israel. And, and he's doing what Moses did in Exodus 15, David is, in the Psalter. And that leads me to say this. We should try to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. And a moment ago, Brad told you that uh, my title at Southern Seminary is Professor of Biblical Theology. That's how I define biblical theology. The attempt to understand and embrace, you might say, the worldview of the biblical authors. We're trying to see the world the way that they did. And here's how they saw the world. In the beginning, if we start over there and move left to right, as we're all accustomed to. In the beginning, God created the world. It was very good. And then man sinned. And, and brought death into the world. But God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that death was not going to have the last word and that the tempter was not going to have the last word, but that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then that promise gets passed down through the generations and eventually the, this small family of peoples in Egypt has become a nation. But they're a nation that is enslaved to Egypt. And God raises up Moses and he sends him to Pharaoh to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. In fact, what, what, what Moses said to Pharaoh was, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And you can imagine how that's going to go over. Oh, okay, sure. I'll just let all these slaves who do all the work that I don't want to do, I'll just let them walk right out of here. Moses Moses says these words, and Pharaoh's response is what we would, what we would expect. My name is, who is the Lord? And in Hebrew, it's actually the divine name, Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And then Moses, when Moses said that to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? And it's almost as though Pharaoh has referenced all of the gods that he worships, the images of which probably surrounded him. And, and, and he says, I and gods, who is your God, Yahweh? that I should let his people go. And as you know, Pharaoh refuses to do it until the Lord smashes him. And, and the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt, and once that had happened, after the, the plagues, Pharaoh sent the people out. So these slaves have just been liberated, and, and this is a very important point that, that Israel missed, for the most part, most of the Israelites missed this point, but we should not miss it. God saved Israel from an impossible situation. If you had said to the Israelites, get yourself out of Egypt, that we have no power to do that. We have no power to liberate ourselves. We have no political leverage. We have no weapons to, to gather a, a, an army together and fight off the Egyptians. There is no way for us to get ourselves out. God saved them. God saved them. And, and then it's like the Lord began to test them. 
It's like he began to say to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And their response shows that over and over again, they failed to understand what he had done for them. The first instance of it is when they get to the shores of the Red Sea. They've just impossibly been delivered from Egypt. They get to the shores of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh has changed his mind, and here he comes. And, and Pharaoh and all his horses, all his chariots, and all his army, all his hosts, they are rushing toward the Israelites. And the Israelites say to Moses, why did you bring us out into the wilderness to kill us? Now, here's what I submit they should have learned right then. They should have responded like this, and I think... Moses and some of the others probably did. Joshua, Caleb, maybe Aaron and Miriam. I, I would suggest to you those, those who knew the Lord, this is how they responded. He got us out of Egypt. This is going to be no problem for him. We just saw him strike down the firstborn of Egypt. Whatever dangers we face, he can handle it. I suspect that some of them, probably a very small number, were responding that way. And, and you know the story. Moses raises his staff. The waters part. Israel goes through the waters on dry land. And then they sing this song in Exodus 15 in response to what the Lord has done. And what they're going to do is they're going to look back on what God has done for them in the past to look forward to what God will do for them in the future. And the message of Exodus 15 at one level is so simple. But at another level... It, it is so profound and so life-changing, so life-transforming. If you understand this message, if you embrace this message, and those of you with circumcised hearts, those of you who have been born again, I know that you're rejoicing in this message. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. What we want you to know is that this is the God that we worship. And this is why we worship this God. Maybe like me, you've been following what's been happening in Wilmore, Kentucky, with all of these students uh, having what appears to be some kind of religious revival. As I was listening to a report of what's going on there, uh, I was hearing this journalist say, so many of these students have lived lives in which they are racked with anxiety. They are eaten up with anxiety. And social media is ruining their lives. They, they, they get on social media and they just feel sad and they begin to weep. And, and they, they need something to live for. They need something to give them purpose. And they, they need something outside themselves, as, as Brad mentioned earlier, to deliver them. And, and naturally, the best answer in these kinds of scenarios, the best answer is the answer found in the scriptures, the answer provided by Christianity, and so naturally many of them are flocking to the Lord. It's a great, it's a great thing. We should pray for it to happen here. Let's look together at Exodus chapter 15, and we'll see the way that in response to God's triumph over Egypt at the Red Sea, Moses teaches Israel a song of response that is to teach them how to think about their past and how to think, think about their future. How to, how to really, in a way, offer their, their hearts up as living sacrifices, we might almost say. Now, as we go through Exodus 15, I am going to uh, suggest that this, this chapter is a chiasm. And, and a chiasm, yes, please do laugh. The, the people at Kenwood laugh when I tell them that this passage we're about to look, look at is a chiasm. It is. It's amazing. It, the, a chiasm, the word 
chiasm is built off the word chi. And if you've seen like the Sigma Chi fraternity house, you've seen that Greek letter chi that looks like an X. And I'm going to use, I, I think this building was constructed for my chiasm. So I'm going to use sort of the, the roof line here, the ceiling with the speakers in the front, as, as sort of the, uh, a, a placeholder for the, the pieces of my chiasm. And I hope that this will serve as a memory device for you, as a mnemonic aid. And I hope that even perhaps in, in coming days, you know, if you, if you just exert a little bit of mental energy on doing this, you'll be able to remember the structure and the contents of Exodus 15 because of this arrangement. And, and I hope that in coming days, perhaps when you're in this room and you're maybe alone or it's quiet or nothing's happening and you have an opportunity to reflect, you can look at this outline and think through the chiastic structure of Exodus chapter 15. So uh, what Moses has done is he has made the beginning, which over there, the, the white part before the speaker starts, that first uh, sort of angle there, we're going to call that the beginning, and that's verses 1 and 2, and that beginning corresponds to the end, and that's the corresponding section over there with the two little sprinkler heads before the speakers start, and, and that is verses 20 and 21. So look with me at verses 1 and 2, and what you're going to hear as I read verses 1 and 2 and then verses 20 and 21 are repeated phrases, the exact same language, and that's on purpose. Moses intended people to see this literary structure. So Exodus 15, verses 1 and 2. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So just a word of comment. This is exactly what just happened at the Red Sea. God brought Israel through on dry land, and then it's as though he lifted up the army of Pharaoh chucked them into the waters, causing the waters to collapse upon them as they followed Israel in. Look with me down at verse 21. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The words of verse 21 exactly match the words of verse 1. Uh, the, the one is... A personal statement in the indicative in verse 1. The other is a call to praise in the imperative in verse 21. But they are the exact same words in the exact same order, celebrating the exact same moment of deliverance. Look at verse 2. In response to this, in response to the way the Lord saved Israel at the Red Sea, the people say, the Lord is my strength. And my song. And I would invite you to reflect on this. And I would invite you to think about perhaps anxiety that you might be dealing with. What do you look to when you feel it coming on? Maybe there are people in the room who suffer with panic attacks. Do you, do you look for resources of strength within yourself? Or is this your testimony? The Lord is my strength. And then let me invite you to think about what you sing about, what, what lyrics most often come out of your mouth? Are you singing about broken relationships? Are you singing about the delights of this world? Are you singing about the ways that you want to be seen to be impressive in the world? This is in a lot of the music that we hear. 
Or is it the case that the Lord is your strength and your song? With what with whatever you're facing, embracing the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors, in other words, seeing the, way, seeing the world the way Moses sees the world, involves when I need strength, I look to the Lord. Whether that's strength to overcome sin, strength to overcome fears, doubts, strength to stand up and be courageous when, when you need to do the right thing and, and maybe you're afraid of doing it for whatever reason. The Lord is my strength and my song. This is, this is what we want to be true of us. And then verse 2 goes on, and he has become my salvation. Now, before I say more, let me just uh, observe here that these words, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, these words are gonna, they're going to echo through the Old Testament. And here's why. It's because the event of the Exodus is so significant in in the Old Testament story. It's the moment when Israel is definitively delivered and then God brings them out to Mount Sinai and he constitutes them a nation by giving them the Old Covenant. And so what's going to happen here in Exodus 15 is Moses is going to say the way that God has saved us at the Exodus is the way he's going to save us in the future. And then later prophets like Isaiah and later psalmists like the writer of Psalm 118, which doesn't have an author at, at, the, at the top of it. These later biblical authors are going to quote Exodus 15 verse 2. And they're going to quote it saying what God did for us at the Exodus is what he's going to do for us in the future. So just a moment on, on Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 11, you know, is the place where Isaiah says, a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse. And he's clearly talking about the future king from the line of David. And then after he's described the glorious salvation that that king is going to accomplish, which we know has been fulfilled in Jesus. In Isaiah 12, there is this song of praise in response to the future salvation that the Davidic Messiah is going to accomplish. And look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Isaiah, in Isaiah 12, 2, is quoting Moses in Exodus 15, verse 2. The same thing happens in Psalm 118. I'm not going to take the time to go there. But you can, perhaps later this afternoon, read through Psalm 118. It's a magnificent psalm that describes the way that that future Messiah, the expected Messiah, has conquered. And he comes to the city, and the hosts of people are gathered at the temple to welcome him in. And as he enters the city, he is saying the words of Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It's glorious. And then look at those next words here in verse 2, and this is a challenge for every man in the room. Every man in the room who is a husband or a father. The, the last words of Exodus 15, 2 says, This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So we're not exactly certain who wrote Exodus 15. It could be Moses, or it, it actually could be Miriam. If you look down at verse 20, we read, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, which, by the way, also makes her the sister of Moses, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So Miriam, 
may have composed Exodus 15 and then led the women in the singing of this victory song. And then her brother Moses liked it so much that he incorporates it right into the Bible. What, what a story. I mean, maybe, maybe Moses wrote it. I don't know. We're not certain. But at any rate, both Moses and Miriam could say, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. They are following in the footsteps of their father. And brothers, we need to pass the faith to the next generation. And, and Deuteronomy 6 tells us how to do that. It tells us to teach the word diligently to our children and then to talk of the things in the word when we rise up and when we lie down, when we sit in the house and when we walk by the way. This is the way that we are to pass the faith on to the next generation. Recently, I had the opportunity to do a wedding of two young people. They were like 22 and 23, I think. And, and, uh, and it struck me that if, if they walk with the Lord, they could have a six-decade marriage if they live into their 80s. And, and I challenged them. I said, think of the legacy of faith that you could leave to your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren as you as you abide in Christ and walk with the Lord together. That's exactly what is testified to here in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. So verses 1 and 2 and verses 20 and 21 call the people of God to sing to the Lord because he is our salvation. He is our strength. He is our song. So let me give you a point of application here, a take home from this sermon I just want to urge you to recognize how God deserves praise. And the Apostle Paul thinks God deserves so much praise that he's bold to say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always. And he doesn't insert any like parenthetical remarks or footnotes like, unless the, the Egyptians and Pharaoh are rushing at you in their chariots and you're trapped between them and the Red Sea. No, he says rejoice always. And pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks. And it is, it is only if we learn this lesson that we see in these narratives where God keeps putting his people in these impossible situations. And then he keeps delivering them. I mean, it's almost as though he says, go ahead and kill them. I'll raise them from the dead. Which is how the story culminates, isn't it? With the Lord Jesus. So, so we should, in response to who God is, rejoice always and pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Our next unit is this, this, this angle here, the first angle of the speaker on this side. That's verses 3 and 4. And the corresponding first angle of the speaker on this side, so these are second and second to last, are verses 18 and 19. And look at what they say. Look at verses 3 and 4. The Lord, and you can see how the word Lord there has these small caps, you know, it's a capital R, but it's the same size as a lowercase letter. That's telling you that that represents the name Yahweh. So I'm going I'm to use the word Yahweh here, the name Yahweh. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. It's almost like Moses is saying to Pharaoh, remember when you said, who is Yahweh? Yahweh is his name. And Moses learned this from the Lord himself. After, after Pharaoh asked that question in Exodus 5, in Exodus 6, the Lord says over and over again, I am Yahweh. This is what I'm going to do for Israel. I am Yahweh. It's almost as though he's responding directly to Pharaoh and his disregard. 
Yahweh is a man of war, Moses says. Yahweh is his name. And then look at the corresponding statement down in verse 18 where it says, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And those two statements are mutually interpretive. This is the way that, that chiasms work. The part on this side is meant to be part, read with the part on that side, and they mutually inform one another. So we ask the question, why do we know, how do we know that Yahweh's going to reign forever and ever? Well, because of verse 3, because he's a man of war, and nobody can overcome him. He's willing to fight for what belongs to him, He's willing to stand up for his oppressed people. He's willing to vindicate those who are being abused and harmed and taken advantage of in various ways. He's a man of war, and he's going to reign forever and ever. And then look at the way that verses 4 and 19 basically say the same thing. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And then look at verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So in both cases, Pharaoh and his horses, they go into the sea because the Lord is a man of war and the Lord is going to reign forever and ever. So let me give you a point of application from these second and second to last units. And I just want to urge you to be confident in God. I, I, I want to urge you to recognize that if you find yourself in a scenario, high-stress situation, not sure how things are going to work out, everything looks terrible, all the indications are bad, and, and I, I hope and pray that you will be the kind of person who will say something like this, God threw Pharaoh and his chariots into the sea. And then Israel came through the sea, and they're in the midst of the wilderness, and there's nothing to eat. And God put manna on the ground for them to eat. And there's nothing for them to drink. And, you know, each case, the, the, the Israelites are showing again and again that they haven't learned the lesson. They get out there, there's nothing to eat. Oh, would that we had the leeks and onions in Egypt. No, you, you didn't have leeks and onions. You were slaves. You didn't have the good life in Egypt. You weren't foodies in Egypt. You were manual laborers, and it was miserable. You were groaning under your, under your burdens. It wasn't the good life. And they haven't learned. They haven't learned. They haven't learned to trust the Lord. They haven't learned to be confident in him. And then they have no water. And what does he do? He breaks open a rock, and here comes all this water for them to drink. It's like the Lord is trying to say, I want you to be people who are prepared to count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I want you to be people who expect me to act for you when you get in a, between a rock and a hard place, we might say. So be confident in God. You know, I mentioned Isaiah a moment ago. Isaiah, all over the place, is prophesying of that future salvation that is going to be like the exodus from Egypt. People refer to it as the new exodus. Isaiah's prophecies of the new exodus. And in one of these sections, in Isaiah 54, Isaiah says, because Israel fled Egypt in haste, he says to them that, that a time is coming when they will not go out in haste, but, but they will go out uh, with, with calm peace. And then in another one of these sections, in Isaiah 54, 17, he tells them, 
No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. I like the old King James rendering. No weapon forged against you shall stand. Isaiah is prophesying that in the same way that God saved Israel at the Exodus, he's going to save his people at the new Exodus. And I'm, I'm confident that I can say to everybody in here that believes in Jesus, everybody in here that has been born again, I can say to you, if God is for you, who can be against you? No weapon forged against you will stand. Because he is going to accomplish his purpose. The Lord is a man of war, and we can be confident in him. I love this statement in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 11. Uh, Jeremiah is being persecuted, and he says, the ESV renders this, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. And I like that phrase, but I like the New American Standard even better. The New American Standard says, the Lord is with me as a dread champion. That's how we ought to feel. He is with me as a dread champion, and there is nobody that can overcome him. Next... Our, our third, and uh, uh, this would be the third, and third to last units. These two units are a little bit longer. Verses 5 through 10 and verses 13 through 17. And in these two units, Moses has bracketed each of them. And, and what happens here is, is just fascinating. He, Moses is going to say the same kinds of things in verse 5 that he's going to say in verse 10. And then he's going to say the same kinds of things in verse 13 that he's going to say in verse 17 and what he's done is he's created corresponding units the first one is on the victory over Egypt at the Red Sea and at the Exodus the second one is oh it's about the future victory over the peoples of Canaan look with me at verse 5 verse 5 reads the floods covered them they went down into the depths like a stone look down at verse 10 you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So you can see how the waters cover them, and they go down in the waters in verse 5 and in verse 10. Now, it's, it's awesome what Moses does here, because when he says in verse 5, the floods covered them, that's the same word for covered that's used in the flood narrative. When, when the waters covered all the high mountains. And the same thing, Moses, I think, wants us to see, that the same thing is happening in both cases. At the flood, the wicked enemies of God who are persecuting, persecuting Noah, they're overwhelmed in the waters of God's judgment, the flood waters of God's judgment. Same thing happens at the Red Sea. These wicked Egyptians, seed of the serpent, who are trying to oppress and even murder the male seed of the woman of Israel... They're overwhelmed by the waters of judgment in the Red Sea. And, and what Moses is doing is he's trying to teach his audience to think in terms of these patterns of events. There was a pattern of event at the flood, pattern of events at the flood, and now that same pattern of events is being repeated at, at, the, at the Red Sea. And I think that Jesus has that pattern of events in mind when he says in Mark chapter 10, I have a baptism to undergo. You know, the sons of Zebedee come to him and they say, we want to sit on your right and your left. And he says to them, I have a baptism to undergo. And then he says, are you able to drink that, the cup that I have to drink? He's clearly talking about being crucified. What Jesus is saying is something like this. Those floodwaters that covered the enemies of God in the Old Testament, those floodwaters of God's wrath, I 
am going to be submerged, symbolically, in the floodwaters of God's wrath when I am crucified on the cross. That's what Jesus is saying. And Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he says, he makes that remark about how uh, baptism corresponds to the flood. I think what Peter is saying is, by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, when we are submerged in the floodwaters of baptism, it is as though Christ's experience of baptism in the floodwaters of God's wrath counts for us and no wrath remains for us anymore. It's all taken away by the Lord Jesus. So we are symbolically united to Christ by faith in the waters of baptism in the way that spiritually we are united to Christ by faith when we believe in him, which, I mean, this is why we're Baptists. We believe that believers should be uh, immersed in waters because it's believers who are united to Christ by faith and it's believers for whom Christ's experience of the floodwaters of God's wrath counts. And this is why if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, your friend who invited you and all these Christians that, that are so nice to you, this is why we're so eager for you to believe the gospel because we don't want you to experience the floodwaters of God's wrath. We don't want you to be like the wicked of Noah's day or like the wicked of, in the days of the Exodus, the seed of the serpent Egyptians who are opposing God and fighting against God. You won't win. They didn't win. You won't win. Uh, look, look, look again with me at verse 5. The floods covered them, the Egyptians. They went down into the depths like a stone. And then in verse 6, Moses starts talking about the Lord's right hand. And this is recalling Exodus chapter 6, where after Pharaoh had said, Who is Yahweh? The Lord had said, By a strong hand I will bring them out. And here Moses celebrates the Lord's Powerful right hand. He says, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. I think there's a little bit of an allusion here to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And I think that there are overtones of that here. And then he says in verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. There's a statement that's similar to this in the very first psalm. Do you know the words? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night and so forth. And then not so the wicked. It's not the exact same phrase, but it's really similar. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. I know it seems like the wicked are the establishment. I know it seems like they're the ones with all the power. It seems like they're the ones who are in control of the culture. But I say to you with confidence, they will be like chaff that the wind drives away. They will be consumed, as Exodus 15 verse 7 says, like stubble. That's what's going to happen to them. They will not withstand the Lord. Think about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Think about what happened to Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. They're going down. We can be confident in the Lord. He continues in verse 8, Moses does. At the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. Now, we could talk about this perhaps after the service or maybe in one of your uh, theology classes. The Lord doesn't literally have a body, but he's being spoken of in anthropomorphic terms. And, and, And the image is the Lord drew this great intake of breath... And then he blasted it out of his his nostrils, and that caused the parting of the Red Sea. That's the image that's used. 
At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And again, this is so influential, what happened at the Red Sea, that it, it, get, it gets echoed across the Old Testament. So over in Exodus, I'm, I'm sorry, not Exodus, in Psalm 18, which is the, the, the psalm that was our call to worship this morning, as David is describing the way that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from Saul, and think about the situation there. David is kind of like Israel, and Saul is kind of like Pharaoh. David has no power. Saul has all the power. David has no army. Saul has 3,000 men that he's chasing David around. David has no hope of escaping Saul. And David looks at his situation, and he basically says, God saved me in the same way that he saved Israel at the Exodus. And he says in, in Psalm 18, verse Verses 15 and 16, he makes this statement, which it's, it's a poetic, metaphorical description because what Saul was doing was throwing spears at David. There wasn't a literal torrent of floodwaters that threatened David. But David says in Psalm 18, verses 14 and 15, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord. At the blast of the breath of your nostrils. It's like David is saying, God parted the Red Sea for me and delivered me from Saul. We should talk this way. When the Lord comes through for us, we should feel the license to say, he parted the Red Sea for me. At the blast of the breath of his nostrils, the waters piled up and I walked through on dry ground. We should celebrate the Lord's deeds. We should learn to talk about what God has done for us the way that the biblical authors talk about what God has done for them. Look at verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. So that's what Egypt is thinking. Egypt is thinking, I'm having those slaves back. And if they resist, I'm killing them. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. Is that familiar? Does that remind you of anything? Remember Genesis 8:1? At the end of the flood, the Lord caused a wind to move across the waters so that the waters recede and the ark lands. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. There's that language again of the flood. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, we're going to skip verses 11 and 12. We're coming back to them. But, but right now, I want to observe that verses 5 through 10 have been all about the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of Egypt at the Red Sea. Verses 13 through 17 are going to be all about the conquest of Canaan. And think about these two events. Egypt overwhelmingly outmans Israel. Israel has no hope of defeating Egypt. And Moses is going to say to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you are going into that land that is inhabited by seven nations, each more numerous and stronger than you are. So they're outnumbered seven to one, and every one of the seven outmans them. How are they going to take that land? The same way they got out of Egypt. That's how they're going to take the land. That's what Moses is teaching them right here. Moses is teaching them the pattern of God's salvation at the Exodus is the pattern of the way that God is going to give you the land at the conquest. We could almost say the conquest of the land of Canaan is going to be a new Exodus salvation. So, so look with me at verse 13. 
where Moses starts talking as though it's already happened. He, he, he's, they're, they're, they've just come through the Red Sea. They're not even to Mount Sinai yet. And Moses is talking as though the Lord has already brought them into the land of Canaan. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now look down at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Okay, so this, this leading them and bringing them into his abode, brackets verses 13 through 17, just like the sea covering them and them going down in the waters like lead, bracketed verses 5 through 10. So the Lord is going to bring his people into his dwelling place. That's what the land of Canaan represents. It's almost as though Moses is saying, he doesn't quite say this, but it's pretty close. The land of Canaan is like a new Eden. What you lost when you were driven out of Eden, I'm giving back to you as I take up residence, my abode in the land of promise with you. And Moses is saying, you've brought them in. And then look at verses 14 through 16, which describe the inhabitants of Canaan, those seven nations, stronger and more numerous than they are. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling Caesars seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And if you, if you know the story of Joshua, you know that this is exactly the way that Rahab talks to the spies. The spies come to Rahab, and, and Rahab says to them, as soon as we heard what your God did to, to Egypt, our hearts melted. Now, here's what I think happened. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but this is me speculating a little bit here. Uh, I think that probably Israel sang this song all the time. And as they interacted with other people, and as people sat around the fire and talked about what God had done, the news began to spread, and the song began to be transmitted. And eventually, the news of what God had done to Egypt made, made its way to Jericho, so that this woman who lives in the walls of Jericho, who is not receiving intelligence briefings, you know, who doesn't have a cell phone for somebody to text her, she, she, she doesn't have a newspaper, but she knows the story, and she's even using the language of the Bible to talk about the story. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. It's as though it's already happened. How can they be so certain? How can Moses be so certain, I should say? Because he's confident in God. Look at verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. How did the Lord redeem Israel from Egypt? By a strong hand and an outstretched arm, Psalm 136 says. You got the hand in verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the enemy. And now you've got the arm in verse 16. Because of the greatness of your arm. And then look at the next words of verse 16. They are still as a stone. Look back at verse 5. They went down into the depths like a stone. What Moses is doing is forging connections between what God did at the Red Sea and what he's going to do at the conquest. And he's forging connections between who the Egyptians are and who the Canaanites are. They're both like a rock, like a stone. And, and so by means of these connections, I say Moses intends for people to think about the conquest in light of the Exodus. 
I'm talking about what Moses intends to communicate. This is a, a, a principle called authorial intent. This is not me telling you this. I'm, I'm claiming Moses intends people to see this. And that leads me to say a, a little bit of a technical word about something called typology. Typology looks at these patterns that I've been talking about. Patterns from the flood and the Red Sea and then the cross and then baptism Patterns from what happens at the Red Sea and then what happens at the conquest and then what the prophets talk about in the future. And typology is God-ordained. So I would say that the sovereign God caused these events to happen so that they look like one another. And then author intended. Moses, the biblical author, notices the God-ordained similarity between the events. God-ordained, author intended Historical correspondence. These events actually, it's not just Moses being a good writer and making up a story that that has these parallels. It actually happened. Historical correspondence in patterns of events between people, people like Adam and Noah and Moses and Joseph and others. Events, the exodus, the conquest and so forth. And institutions. And here's where like the tabernacle and the Levitical um, priestly uh, system come into play and the way that that corresponds with, with uh, things that are going to be fulfilled in Christ. Look at verse 16. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. And that word for pass by is the same word that's rendered pass over. The, the destroyer at the Exodus, he passed over the homes of the Israelites because they had the lamb's blood in, on the doorpost and the lintel. And then the Israelites have just passed over the Red Sea. And now the people of Israel are going to pass over into the land of Canaan. That word, pass over, that word that's translated pass by here, is used over and over and over in Joshua chapters 1 and 2. You go read Joshua 1 and 2 and you'll see references to them crossing over or passing over over and over again. Joshua got it. Joshua understood what Moses was doing. And Joshua is talking about the conquest as though it's a new Passover, we could say. Till the people pass by at the end of verse 16, whom you have purchased. God purchased them by the blood of those lambs. God redeemed to himself the people of Israel. And if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, he's purchased you. Don't you know, Paul says repeatedly, and and I think Paul is borrowing imagery from the Exodus when he says this. Don't you know that you are not your own? You were bought at a price. This is redemption language. It's it's Exodus language that Paul is using to help us understand who we are. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, around verses 14 through 16, speaks of the Garden of Eden as though it was on a mountain. They've now come out, they're, they're on their way out to Mount Sinai, where that place is referred to as the mountain of God. And, and then as they go into the land of Canaan, they're going to go to a place called Mount Zion where the temple is going to be built. So these mountains figure very prominently. They're associated with God's dwelling place. You will bring them in and plant them. God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And now he's going to plant his people in the place which he has made for his own abode. The sanctuary, the dwelling place of God, which your hands have established. God is going to restore his communion and fellowship with his people. The point of the Exodus was not just to liberate them from slavery. It was to make it so that they 
enjoyed communion with God. It was to make it so that they could serve God in the land. That was the point of the Exodus. The point of your coming to know Jesus, your getting saved, is not just to deliver you from hell. It's to enable you to abide in Christ, the fulfillment of the temple. It's to enable you to enjoy the worship and fellowship of knowing God. Point of application, I'm, I'm going to refer to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will also complete it. And, and we could, you know, if we were there to chide the people of Israel, you think he's going to bring you out of Egypt and he's not going to bring you into the land? You think he's going to bring you out of Egypt and he's not going to get you through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness? He who began a good work in you will also carry it to completion. Paul says something similar in Romans 5, 9 through 11. If we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, how much more will will we be saved by him from wrath at the judgment? It's the same principle. Be confident that he who began the work will complete it. So if you are dealing with anxiety or some besetting sin, look to the Lord as your strength and your song. Be confident that he's able to overcome. He's a man of war. He'll fight for you. And then look at these promises. Lay hold of them. Well, right here in the middle of this whole thing, so we've got our first section and last section that correspond to one another, second and second to last, third and third to last, which match each other, Uh, the exodus being a type of the conquest. Now in the middle are these statements of worship in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Moses, having grown up in Pharaoh's household, having seen the way that idolatry operates, would know all too well that idolatry is enslaving. Those sacrifices that you make to idols, they are not redemptive. They do not cleanse your conscience. They only provide to the God what the God demands. Those gods, those idols, are slave masters. And the things that we struggle with are often slave masters, aren't they? Our desire for pleasure, our desire for power, our desire for money, these things so easily become slave masters. And and just as Brad said earlier in the service, they can't deliver. Who is like the Lord among the gods? No one is. No one is worthy. No one is worthy of our praise, of our trust, of our confidence, our devotion, our service. Moses continues there in verse 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? From creation to the giving of Isaac to barren Sarah, the preservation of the line of descent of the seed, the the saving of the world through Joseph, and now the liberation of that, that nation of slaves from the house of Egypt. Awesome and glorious deeds. Doing wonders. And then even here, at the very center of this thing, it's almost like Moses is looking back to look forward. Verse 12. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Now, I think the immediate referent of this, the earth swallowing them, is talking about how the waters covered over the army of Pharaoh. But it's anticipating something, isn't it? It's anticipating Korah's rebellion when the earth is going to open up its mouth and swallow those who are opposed to Moses. 
and God's work. So worship looks back to look forward. And this is what we do as we celebrate the cross in our songs. And, and even in the Lord's Supper, you can hear this. At the Lord's Supper, we, we say the words, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, looking back to the cross, until he comes, anticipating what we sang about in Lo, he comes with the clouds descending. Who is like you, O Lord? So, forgive me here, but even my applications come chiastically, okay? So my first application for the first and last part of the sermon was, he deserves praise, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. The second application was, from verses 3 and 4 and 18 and 19, you should be confident in God, because no weapon forged against you will stand. My third application was also be confident in God. My last application is my first. He deserves praise. There's no one like him. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be those that John describes in Revelation chapter 15. Those who are gathered around your throne in heaven before the sea of glass mingled with fire. Those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name because we love not our lives even unto death. And Lord, we want to join that great company singing the song of Moses, Exodus 15, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Lord, what you did at the Red Sea is fulfilled in Christ, and we praise you for it. We thank you that the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost and lintel points forward to the blood of Christ that washes away all our sin. And Lord, we thank you for the confidence that we can have that your word will not return to you void. Lord, I praise you for the fact that Probably even as I address you right now, there are people turning to you, trusting in you. And there are people who are rejoicing in you. Lord, we thank you that your word will bear fruit. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus told us that if we abide in his word, we would bear fruit. Make it happen, we pray. In his name, amen.